Good afternoon, good evening. You're tuned in to Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. And we are always available via podcast. You can find us on KUCI's website, KUCI.org, or Kimberly Martin, Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-E.com. KimberlyMartin.com. I'm your guest host, Marie Stone. This show is an informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. The guests on this show are all people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity. Kimberly is out this week, but I'm pleased to be able to be back. Before we dive into today's topic, I and I introduce my um, my brilliant guest, who I'm so excited to talk to. I wanted to quickly share what I love about this show and what it's taught me since I started guest hosting a little while ago. There's so many wonderful talk shows on KUCI. My own uh, is on Wednesday mornings, Writers on Writing. But, you know, we always talk about craft and books and writing. And the great thing about this show is that we can talk about any topic. We can talk about any person, any area of interest. It's all up for grabs. And Orange County is just filled with fascinating people. So I get to, to stop people and lasso them into the station and we get to talk. And I have learned so much from everyone Everyone has an amazing story. Everyone's interesting to listen to. Today is no different. My guest has been on an incredible journey and made some unintuitive discoveries that amazed me, and I know they're going to amaze you. So a reminder to us all, especially during the holidays, to slow down when you can and stop a minute and listen to people. And um, you can learn so much from people in your own neighborhood. I learned that my guest today lives in my own neighborhood, and, and um, so just listen to their stories, and this show lets me do that. It's a reminder uh, for me to do that in my daily life, too. So enough about that. Today, we're talking about autism, and my guest, Christina Adams, has an amazing story to share. She is the author of the popular memoir, A Real Boy, A True Story of Autism, Early Intervention, and Recovery. She's been a commentator for National Public Radio, and her work has appeared in the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, the L.A. Times Magazine, Child Magazine, and many other publications. She's a featured writer and advice columnist for Autism File Magazine. She's a speaker at conferences across the country, including California State University Long Beach, National Early Childhood Educators, Hamilton Healthcare Center, Center for Autism-Related Disorders, on and on. Um, her new medical journal article, Autism Spectrum Disorder Treatment with Camel Milk, recently appeared in Global Advances in Health and Medicine, and it's the first U.S. original medical journal article about camel milk treatment. She's also a special education advocate and advisor for families from many cultures. She lives in California, and it is my pleasure to welcome her on. Christina, hi. Hello. So I'm going to I'm going to first have you move your mic up. I'm so sorry. All the way. Perfect. Perfect. And uh, so welcome. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. So I'm going to give you a chance to sort of take us into your story and how this topic became so important to you and the experiences with your son sort of take us, start start us on your journey. Thank you very much. I guess um, I would like to just say, uh, my mother, if you were listening, uh, I hope you feel good about all the effort you put into me to have such a nice introduction from Mary, so um, I should have probably given her a heads up, but she's home in Virginia. So, how did I get into this strange world of camels, camel milk, and autism? Well, no one exactly anticipates they're going to be making such leaps in their life that would lead them to what may be esoteric topics when you are just a regular American woman living your life. So my son was diagnosed with autism, and this occurred in Orange County where I lived, and I still live. Before that, I'm from Virginia, and I had lived in Los Angeles, but I moved here and had this baby, and everything seemed quite normal at first, and he was doing very, very well. But then he regressed around the pretty typical 15 to 18 months, range and uh, so there were some concerns yet he had so many skills it was very difficult for people to diagnose that he was on the autism spectrum finally it was which is not an exceptional it was a preschool aide who said my nephew has autism and your son reminds me of him so of course that led us to other people that said well we had figured it out we were just waiting to tell you and those were not pediatricians those were not psychologists at the time which wasn't that long ago 
that um, they were not able to really identify it. So i just like to throw it out there for people that think it's um, now a trend or overdiagnosed or anything like that. It is really not. It is not an easy diagnosis to get. So i just like to put that in perspective. Now that the current rate of autism spectrum disorders is one out of every 45 U.S. children. Wow. When I started, it was one out of 10,000, and that's quite a rise. And they have ruled out mostly that it's not people moving into the state of California for services. It's not you know, a greater diagnosis. Sure, there's going to be a little bit of that, but mainly that's not it. So just throwing that out there because it's kind of a topic these days. Yeah. So um, I threw myself into autism, and uh, I did have a graduate degree in writing, and I had been a writer, but uh, you pretty much have to drop everything when you get autism in your life. So that's when I did a big program with a lot of professionals helping, and he did very, very well. So at the age of five, he was able to pass a kindergarten readiness test undetected. Mm -hmm. So that took a great deal of time and a lot of money, um, most of it from public sources, which is a great thing because then you don't end up providing that 2 to $3 million lifetime care cost that comes with an adult who can't function. Wow, right, mm -hmm. right. So money well spent. So I, that was what my first book was about, A Real Boy, A True Story of Autism, Early Intervention, and Recovery. And it's still out there. Um, I think you can get it for something like $4 these days on Amazon. Everything's still very relevant. So if you know someone that is starting the autism journey, that's a good thing to give them. It seems to be known as sort of the autism Bible. I mean, I, I know of so many people who rave about your book and sort of how it not only tells them what to expect, but kind of holds their hand in a lovely, caring, you know, this is what you need to be thinking about, this is what you need to be aware of, and I know what you've gone through, and, you know, it's very empathetic. Oh, thank you. That mm -hmm. is really sweet of you to say. And I guess at the time, there were a couple of books out, but they didn't tell the true story of that all-encompassing, life-changing situation that's going to hit both the parent and the child. So I felt like, okay, I want to write this book, but I want to tell the real story, the whole story. So like the father's not just the shadowy figure in the background. You know, the um, the focus isn't on um, just, just, just the child, child, child all the time, even though it is. Um, it's also that it comes with shock waves around it. So, And you do need support, and you continue to need that support. So that's why I was going through that myself, and I thought we really need to get that out there and um, tell people practical stuff, but also how you're gonna how you're gonna be living your life through this. So, what were the things that the people around you were observing in him that that maybe you weren't observing, or what was it that was tipping them off? Well, at that time, he had language early. He spoke at nine months, beautiful articulation too. Mm -hmm. But then he did lose the language. Then when it came back, it was he would repeat phrases. But I didn't know at the time that that was um, called echolalia. I okay. thought he could talk, but it turned out he couldn't converse. It wasn't really original speech. Um, so that's an early sign. So he was doing that. He also became very, very hyperactive. From being a very calm baby, he became very, very hyperactive. And um, that was difficult. And he wouldn't nap. He got thrown out of a couple preschools. And... Uh, yeah, the kids that don't nap, you can't go through those doors because <laughs> they want their lunch and they have to take a break. I'm not faulting them, but it's that's a, that's another problem. There are not really typical preschools that want to take these children. So, you know, that was a rough patch around here. Right. Um, but he also had rashes on his face, very red skin. Hmm. And I brought that up to the pediatrician who kind of dismissed it. And um, he also had... Um, you know, uh, walking on his toes a little bit, not a lot. Most kids do it far more than he did. It was more than just he was very hyperactive. He was also very obsessed with water, pipes, plumbing, and drains. And he liked to play with water and sounds. Some certain sounds would bother him. I remember, since this is a local station, um, let's do a little local color here. Our, our wonderful stores of uh, Nordstrom had these lovely cafes. And so I remember eating with a girlfriend at the uh, cafe at South Coast Plaza. And I was trying to eat, and my son was taking silverware and hitting me in the head with it and jumping all around the bench and things like that. He was about 16, 17 months old. I didn't know that he was regressing. Um, but my girlfriend was just looking at me in horror, but I'm just trying to hold him with one hand and shove food in my mouth in the other and talk about girl things. And uh, later I realized it's the noise, the oh. silverware, the people. That would make his activity already at a high level even worse. 
Gotcha. So later right. you learn what the heck those things are. But at the time, you're just trying to make it. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, it really strikes me that when you have an only child and you're a first-time mom, so many, everything's new, right? And you have no idea what is normal and what isn't normal and, you know, what's within the spectrum of normal for your kid and what's within the spectrum of normal for all kids. Um, and, and so yes. to be hard to know what's what to tip you off. It was very difficult. And I didn't have family here. They're all back in the uh, Virginia Hills. And uh, my husband didn't have family either here either. So he had some, but they weren't really child-type people. So, And then, you know, everyone, no one wants to say terrible things about your child or what's construed as terrible news. Um, people don't like to do that. And then you do have the people that might say something, but then you get angry sometimes, like, don't say that bad about my beautiful baby. Right. So it's a hard road. There's nothing to answer. There's no good answer to that. But what I would say, if you're listening out there, and I usually have listeners that are struggling with this in their life, either they know of something or they want to say something to someone, then um, the, the hallmark is social difficulties. Um, even if there is language, and there might be very rich, advanced language if they're an Asperger-type kid, it's going to be stilted. It's going to be not as conversational, not as fluid, um, monotone perhaps. It And the other children, um, there are going to be some language difficulties even if it's present. But it's social too. Eye contact is a big thing. Um, but number one, I think, is pointing. I, I learned this later. Mm. Babies and infants, babies and um, young children, they will point to call your attention to someone even before they can talk. If they see a bird, they're going to point their finger and just look at you. like, And that's called joint attention. Like, I see this. I'm looking at you to see if you see this with me. Okay. And so my son did not point. So that was a lack of joint attention there. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So that's a big one. Little things like pointing, uh, atypical crawling, crawling that looks a little unusual, or the failure to crawl and just go straight to walking, things like that. And there is a very good book that I like, and it's called Does Your Baby Have Autism? Mm -hmm. A scary title, right? But actually, it's quite hopeful, and it's very, very good. And it talks about things you can do when the baby is an infant. If they're showing motor delays, which turns out to be uh, a very big hallmark, but you have to know what to look for. And then it talks about ways that you can do things to help, you know, overcome that, reprogram some of their neurological motor issues and, and help them improve. Okay. Mm -hmm. My guest today is Christina Adams. I'm going to ask you maybe some totally ignorant questions because I, I'm totally new to this subject matter. So if they're too ignorant, just tell me, you know, stop it, Marie. But <laughs> so is autism always considered something you're born with or can there be onset of autism later on in life? Yes, and that is not an ignorant question by any means. This is a complex topic, and there is a lot of information and misinformation. The fact is that autism is sort of a wastebasket term and that really doesn't mean much unto itself right now. There are a lot of different kinds of autism, in my opinion. A lot of different kinds of people. They all have differences in each other. Certain groups of kids and adults are similar. Certain groups are different than others. So it's, um, it's actually not, doesn't mean that much. So by that, to answer the question, no. Uh, some kids can be, quote, born with it. There are some. And usually the mothers describe those. They almost know right away. They, they may um, be at birth. They may have motor issues where they don't want to be touched, void contact, uh, kind of scream a lot. There are some of those. Now, whether that was caused by an environmental insult in the womb mm -hmm. could be, and could be, you know, certain other things that are happening that disrupt whatever signaling or regulation was going on during the formation process. So, born with it, maybe. There might be some of those. But that's what it used to be like. That's what the olden days were more like. Um, there were some regression cases, too. But in the books, mostly you'd say, oh, he came out, he didn't look at me, this and that, he was autistic. But now we look at an entirely different thing. And we do know that there are many, many, many environmental insults that can happen to a baby and a young child that can cause autism. Um, in the womb before they're born, there's some things, and then there's also things after. So that can range from power plants. That can range from pollution, wow. living near freeways. There are so many causative agents. There's a study to support just about everyone. And there's controversy around everyone. Um, so, you know, the last thing I'd read was birth control pills. Oh, you know? my God. Yeah. So how widespread <laughs> is that? But there's also a lot of other things that can happen later. You know, a lot of anything that you put into that child 
that's not tailored to that child's DNA, to that child's genetic fingerprint, you don't know what's going to happen. So I almost feel like all this discussion about what causes autism and every child falls into the same bucket is like the dark ages. Yeah. I mean, right now, we're just starting to get a grip on DNA testing, on identifying which genes are responsible for which actions in neurodevelopmental issues. It's like the dark ages. And um, so right now, just to say, oh, everybody can have a certain medical intervention. Everybody can tolerate Tylenol. That's just not true. But we don't know yet a mainstream how to predict those children, put it in an affordable medical format, and protect them from uh, the assault that might turn them into more having autism spectrum disorders. That makes sense, yeah. So so it's almost like cancer. You know, the word cancer means a whole bunch of different things. It's just a, a deformity of a cell that reproduces itself. So it sounds like, and I've heard Parkinson's is the same thing, that Parkinson's is also a big catch-all phrase for a lot of different neurological dysfunctions. Yes, so. and per, perhaps um, perhaps a lot of diseases are. That's mm. why autism is even more nebulous than those. So uh, really, we know now that there are immune responses that are going wrong in, a per, in most people with autism. I mean, there's a lot of studies on that. They've done some, you know, post-mortem studies where they look at brains and shows inflammation. They've looked at um, different diseases that are related to the autism spectrum and seen that there's an immune system component. So that's a big one that, like cancer, immune, you know, that's a big one. So where do you drill down and select which things you're going to try to address and fix? So, of course, prevention is the best way to go. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he was... He was like five when you, when you made this discovery. Um, he was like five the, when the, he passed the kindergarten readiness tested uh, test, and my book came out um, pretty much a couple years after that. Wow! Yeah, so very proud of that fellow, and I'm happy to say that he's doing better than I even thought he would. So, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't say cure because these kids and adults always have weaknesses, always have attention shifting issues, may have some social patches that are rough, may need to be on a special diet. But um, he's doing better than I thought. He is in a regular high school with no aid, IQ of 135 plus, uh, language like a college student since he was nine, um, and then really navigating that social world, um, which is a difficult world. So um, for anybody, really. Yeah. (laughs) Well, some people it comes very naturally to. Other people fall in the middle ground, and then there's people who have had to overcome or still deal with their challenges from being on the spectrum. And, um, you know, so it's not ever easy for people like that. But um, he is doing better than I could have even thought. I mean, you're in a regular public, very large public high school with no aid, regular classes, doing things. That's, That's a big one right there. That is a big one. For, for anyone, really. Mm-hmm. Now Probably. that I'm navigating high school, it's a big one for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. My guest today is Christina Adams. We are talking about autism, and she is the author of A Real Boy, A True Story of Autism, Early Intervention, and Recovery. So what did those early days look like? What sort of help did you did you call in, and you know what, what worked for him? What did he need, and, and what set him on such a great path that other people might benefit from? Well, the early days were very, very, very intensive. Anything to do with autism is pretty much intensive, no matter what it is. But those were the big, intensive days. Um, so I would say, first of all, immediately, as soon as I found out there was an autism diet, in like five or six days, I, he was on it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm doing this now, full court press. Um, so I was lucky I had a couple mentors in my neighborhood in Orange County. They had both been attorneys. They were mothers. They took no prisoners. They said, we've already tried to do everything and do what we say. Do not waste your time and do what we say. And I'm like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was, love that. It's a good thing that I did because um, every child is different, but I did mostly what they, they said. So um, basically... 40 hours a week of in-home um, ABA, which is, you know, uh, applied behavioral analysis. It's a special kind of teaching which breaks down learning into very small parts and requires learning to sit, learning to pay attention, learning to respond. I had people in my house every day, shifts, like three hour, you know, two to three hour shifts every day, two to three people a day. Wow. And uh, that was the ABA part. Then there was three hours a week of one on, one-on-one speech therapy in the home. Then there was two hours a week of occupational therapy. 
then I took him to doctors, doctors, doctors. The main doctor ended up being in the valley, so that was a six-hour oh day there and back. And then um, I also worked with them myself around the clock. I really kind of developed this method of telling them stories because, you know, when they're children, you tell stories. Even when they're adults, you tell stories. Yeah. But um, when they're children, you tell stories, you use books, and you can try to point things out. You can require language repetition. You can supply your language, give them the language, have them repeat it at the appropriate points in the story. And I, I found it very successful when you turn out the lights and we're in the dark and we're talking and doing stories. And uh, it's like it took away that extra stimuli and that let him to focus even more. So um, I just kind of call it my own little method, but I did that all around the clock, you know, just working with him, talking constantly. Oh, so he ended up talking so darn much that uh, <laughs> he had to learn very learn how to not talk so much later. <laughs> mm-hmm. So tell me about the autism diet. What What's on the autism diet? We're going to get into a big component of the autism diet in a minute, but, t- but tell me other things besides camel's milk that are on the autism diet. Well, at that time, it was pretty much gluten-free, casein-free. Those are still the big, the big things. But um, basically, now you can splinter out into these micro groups of, you know, um, are we going to do alkaloids? Are we doing selective carbohydrates? Are we doing? I mean, things you just don't want to know. You just want to choke yourself and make yourself pass out to avoid reading it and doing it. But basically, whatever works for your kid, yeah. if you have the ability to get in there and dig around and understand that language. Um, and it's amazing how the mothers do that. There are some fathers, too, but it's mostly mothers still. But at that time, it was gluten-free, casein-free, sugar, colors, yeast, um, eliminating all those kind of things. Some kids I don't even know what casein is. It, casein is the um, is a very small binding component in dairy products oh. as part of the dairy product itself. It's a natural thing. But when you get baked goods, casein is uh, in a lot of baked goods and a lot of industrial food products. So not only do you have to go off all um, all milk to me, at that time, of course, I knew nothing about camel milk yet, but he went off all goat and dairy and sheep, you know, and bovine and all the, all the kinds of milk forms to get rid of the casein, casein-free diet. And that was the number one thing that my son responded to dietary-wise. Really? Some, uh-huh. Wow. Absolutely. He started, within three weeks, his, um, his face started clearing up and uh, the redness went away. He still had some bumps under there, but the redness went away, and he started talking more. He started pointing, and then it turned out that um, also a lot of carbohydrates, they will turn into, you know, sugar and uh, yeast and things like that, and they would, you know, make him get giddy and goofy and silly and just like, oh, sit down, please, you know. Watching TV, even though he couldn't do that for a while. He couldn't actually watch. He was so, you know, unable to focus. He couldn't watch videos. He couldn't watch TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, that, what does that tell you for a, your right. motherhood fate? Um, so, but yeah, that was where the big ones. Colors are not good either, but um, mostly for him, it was it was the the carbohydrates and the dairy. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, tell me a little bit about your own support system through this time. We're going to take a break in five minutes, and then I want to come back and talk about the camel's milk portion. But I but I want to know for parents who are dealing with this right now. Um, the the support systems that you recommend in Orange County that they could reach out to, both for the parents and for the kids. Uh, but this is a tremendous amount to take on by yourself. Well, I was um, married at the time. She was my son's father, and he was um, an attorney. And I also had had experience kind of working a little bit in his firm, but um, I didn't know have as nearly as much as I was going to come to have. But so that made things a little easier in that you're able to understand legalese. You're able to understand that this is not, you know, a game. No one's going to sweep out and help you out of sympathy. It becomes a constant battleground. So I'm always the one that likes to approach people with the best of intentions. But they're gatekeepers. Everywhere you go, they're gatekeepers. The school district, the regional center, doctors. Everywhere you go, there's people who need to say no to you just for their own reasons, budgetary, whatever have you. So you, we were better prepared than most for that. Um, but as far as support, there is um, now Orange County has, um, you know, the Center for Autism um, and Disorders here at UCI, and they have a clinical intake that they see children and they can diagnose them. And then they can 
tell you, okay, we recommend that he has this, 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 and this, or she, if you have a daughter, and they'll give you the referral that you need, the diagnosis that you need, and you can go off to the powers that be at your school district, the regional center, all those people that are your gatekeepers are going to provide those services to help your child recover as much as possible. Okay. And are there support groups for parents? There are. There are many. I was one of the early uh, people that was in supporting the Talk uh, talk About Caring Autism group, which is also right here in Orange County, and that was 10 people in the living room. So now, of course, it's a big national organization, which is what their founder, the founder's goal was, and congrats to them that they've reached it. And they're very good at diet, very good at you know helping access, and um, so I always tell people to go with them. There are many other little groups, too. And um, we also have a wonderful school here in Orange County for autism spectrum disorders a, a, from sixth grade up to 12th grade, and it's called New Vista, and it's in Orange County, and people don't know that exists. There are some other um, schools as well, but that's a very good one. Um, if you can get, to get yourself through that door, that's a good thing to do once you're old enough. That's fantastic. My guest today is Christina Adams. We are talking about autism. She is the author of A Real Boy, A True Story of Autism, Early Intervention and Recovery. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Real People of Orange County. This might be a good time to take just a very short break, but please stay with us. We're going to be here the whole hour talking with Christina about this important topic. So stay with me. We'll be right back. And we are back. You are tuned into Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. And we are always available via podcast. You can find us on KUCI's website, KUCI.org slash talk. You can find us on Kimberly's website, KimberlyMartin.com. I am here, thrilled to be here with my guest today, Christina Adams. Christina has become an expert in autism through her own experiences with her son. She is the author of the memoir, A Real Boy, A True Story of Autism, Early Intervention and Recovery. And we have been talking for the last half hour about diagnosing autism, what it means to families, what it means to parents, and what it means to their kids. Christina made an amazing discovery that I'm going to let her talk about now that has been probably the most... I. I you can say this, but it's probably been one of the most instrumental things in your son's um, help in uh, in making him feel better, which is camel's milk. So, so let's talk about that. How you came to this discovery, and and a little bit about it. Well, as a girl from Virginia, I did not grow up around any animals other than the cows and the pigs and the chickens on our farm and uh, I don't know anybody around here who grew up around camels so <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite the quite the leap but I adore camels now I love them they're amazing so I was uh, but here's kind of how it did how did that happen right it's kind of strange so um, I was at the children's uh, book fair at the Orange Co- Orange Community College Orange Coast College in um, Costa Mesa and it was a Sunday I'd been separated from his his dad for two weeks, so I knew my life was going to change pretty hugely. And so I just took my son by myself, and there was a girlfriend that came along with her two kids, but she disappeared. So we had already talked to all the authors. We had done all the rides, and I was bored out of my mind because he had his new books, and he was quite the reader, so he just sat down to read, and I thought, well, he doesn't need me for a while. And I looked around, and I thought, Wow, okay, this is pretty much what my life is going to be from here on out. Single mom, doing things that I do, you know, by myself, which I have been anyway in that kind of marriage, right? You know, right. Uh, you end up single parenting before you officially end up single parenting. But so I was really bored and a little bit lonely, and I thought, hmm, there's a camel over there. I'll go find out what is it doing here. No kids are riding that camel. Like, why is it here? It's kind of weird. It's not Christmas, right? It's October. So I went over. And uh, the man was selling soap and lotion made from the milk. And that was kind of interesting. And then I just said, well, what else do they make? What else do they do with the milk? And I, that, to me, that's still a strange question that I asked. Like, why did I ask that? Um, and he said, well, they give it to ba- premature babies in hospitals in the Middle East because it's thought to be non-allergenic. And he may have said um, it's prob- thought to be close to breast milk. Hmm. And so I thought it's just that intuition moment. I thought, this is something that could help my son. And it also could be a great dairy substitute. Because we were talking about the diet, and I talked about removing all other kinds of milk 
I was always desperate for a very good dairy substitute. I wanted him to have calcium. I had one milk made out of potatoes, but it wasn't quite the same. So I was always desperate for that magical dairy substitute. And then also I just had that really that intuition like, this could really help, maybe help his immune system. And if you help the immune system, you can help their the way they function, the way they succeed. Um, so I thought maybe that could do it. So I went home and researched on the computer. There was only like three or four articles and they were very strange, like hospital type articles in the Middle East. Something about how hard it was to make cheese and something about wound healing in Russia. And I was like, oh, this is weird. <laughs> wait, wait, what year was this? That was 2005. Okay. Uh-huh. So then after that, I became single mom and moved. Uh, when you live in Newport, you get divorced. If you're lucky, you go to East Side Coast of Mesa. So came that East Side Coast of Mesa mom. Got myself a condo <laughs> by the 55 freeway. Barely clinging to the side there. But uh, there was, a, I believe, the Alibaba uh, molester oh, yes. motel was like down right. the street. I know exactly where that is. Yep. Not a very savory area, but the real estate market was quite high at the time, so that was the best I could manage. But it was nice, though. Um, Fairground close. There you go. Fair right. Freeway freeway, freeway close. close. If yeah. I were a robber, it would be the best place to rob anyone from because <laughs> you're right on the freeway there. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know that area. So then I just thought, I'm not going to give up. I've got to find this milk. So I kept looking and looking, and I came to UCI. Oh. And I went to the library because I'd been a grad student at Cal State Long Beach, and I thought, okay, college library. So I went over here, went on the computer, and I found... Um, a few months later, I found um, um, an article written by an Israeli veterinarian, Dr. Reuven Yagil, who turns out is this phenomenal camel expert on the other side of the world. Like, this was, you know, my early stepping into this world. And so it said that he'd given the milk to some autistic kids in Israel, and they improved. It was just a short-term thing. It wasn't, like, very long. So I'm like, okay, I have to find out about this. I was, my intuition was on this for some reason, and now here's the proof of that it did some good for some kids. I'm going to go get it. So at the time, I um, belonged to a gym, was playing squash, and I met a Pakistani um, gentleman, and he was very nice. He was like, I'm traveling to Israel. Why don't I try to bring some milk back for you? And so he did, but it got dumped at JFK because we didn't know how to bring it properly. We didn't know you had to get, you know, like put it in the underbelly of the plane and get it, uh, you know, permission and stuff. So it got And now dumped. it's post-9-11, so it's, there are more restrictions on bringing that's true. Liquids on the plane. Right? Well, he, he was concerned because he's Pakistani. He's like, you know wow. what? Already I'm going to Israel, and if I try to bring stuff back, I hope they're going to be okay with me. And so it was very sweet of him. He's a wonderful, sophisticated gentleman, and he did that. So it didn't work, but he put me in the right direction because he got me a phone number. So I called Israel, connected to a couple people, then finally connected to um, Ayal, um, who owns a dairy in Israel. He leases Bedouin um, camels from the Bedouin tribal leaders. And so he milks camels and had the raw the camel milk. And his English wasn't very good at the time. It's improved a lot. But so we're trying to talk and I'm asking him all the, like my sciencey questions, you know. And so he's <laughs> like, you better talk to my um, relative, Dr. Amnon Gonen. And so Dr. Gonen turns out he's a great friend of mine now. We've only met in person once, but that doesn't matter in today's right. age. Yeah, right. He is phenomenal. He's a cancer researcher. Uh, he actually went to university in San Diego. Um, but he um, lives around different parts of the world, but he's an Israeli gentleman. And so he's brilliant. And so he was able to answer a lot of questions I had. But it was an experiment. No one we knew had ever given it to a child with autism. So we were talking about what is what does the autism immune picture look like? And he, with his vast knowledge, PhD and everything, he knew a lot of the questions to ask, and I was asking him. So we're like, let's try it. So I got a letter um, from, you know, doctors approving that you could have it. And then uh, some was brought to me from on El Al from Israel, and I got a few bottles like through the through the chain um, on the sly a little bit. But I had a letter, doctor's letter, so I got it. And um, holding that bottle, it was in a plastic liter bottle. It was raw, frozen camel milk from the the, the desert in Israel from the Bedouins. I'm like. This, this is, is gold. A, this is gold, and I'm, I'm by the 55 freeway in Costa Mesa, and I'm holding this bottle. It was just like really in one of In front of the Yalibaba Hotel. <laughs> well, I didn't go that far down the block. But, yeah, pretty behind the Circle K. That's, yeah, yeah right. there it was. See? Yeah. So I was like, this is a kind of a leap through time, isn't it? But I, wow. I was very happy to get it, so I kept hoarding it because I wanted to 
give it to my son with the best um, kind of scientific observation method I could. And, and at the time, he wasn't really in any, any programs. He was doing so well, he really wasn't doing the programs where they take data and see how they do. So I kept trying to find, okay, when am I going to find that perfect moment to give it to him? Um, so anyway, I got some more in. I kept bringing it in, flying it in, but I was stockpiling it. Um, so then the big magic moment came. I was a single woman. I had been dating. And uh, I met this wonderful man who uh, has two master's degrees and works in healthcare. He knew nothing about autism, which I highly recommend when you're dating. If you have an autistic kid, don't tell them anything. You don't know. tell them about this, right? Don't tell them anything autism. Just let them don't find out Don't show them all themselves. the camel's milk in your refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, it worked for me, but I don't think that, uh, yeah. But um, so he said, my son started having a regression. He was nine years old then. He started having these terrible uh, breakdowns in behavior, climbing on things, getting wild and crazy. I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot deal with this. I mean, I'm a single mom now, and it's terrible. I mean, uh, the only thing that would help was shoving some protein in his mouth, like every two or three hours. But even then, it wouldn't help a lot. He stopped being able to walk across the street by himself. He couldn't pay attention. It was out of control. And so I was so scared of what was happening. And then... um, my, I was dating him at the time. He was my boyfriend. We weren't engaged yet. But he said, why don't you just give him that milk that you've been saving? The camel milk. And I thought, okay, enough with the data and the science. I can't find anybody yet. I'm just going to do it. So I gave him four ounces at bedtime and cereal. And um, the next day at breakfast, he astounded us. Wow. Just so quick. So quick. And see, now I know that it works that way. But that time, we had no idea. And I didn't even know what to expect. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know it would help him that much. Wow. It was just a desperate, intuitive move. And um, It was crazy. And my, my uh, boyfriend was coming over at the time. This is the way you court an autism mom. You come over to help them get ready, the kid ready for bed. And he would, you know, he went home. And he came back in the morning. It's all him to help him get ready for school. I'm wow. Like, oh, my Lord, I love you. There's a keeper. Yes. <laughs> so um, he, uh, he was doing that. And so he got to see him, too. And he's a very, very critical scientific thinker. And he knew nothing about autism, but he has three daughters who are, you know, doing fine. So he he could see the difference. Like, we both were. We both didn't say a word. So the eating was better, more controlled, the fine motor skills, the eye contact. He said things like, you know, you're so awesome. You, Mom, I love you so much. You guys are so great. You do so much for me. And then he, it's just incredible. And then he went, got his own backpack, put on his own shoes, and got ready to walk out the door. And, like, that's what regular kids do. Wow. But that's not what we're used to. That's so, actually not what regular kids do either, but yeah, okay. Well, if you <laughs> if you uh, threaten them with some things, perhaps they will, but right, you know, right. ours cannot be that easily managed. Right. Um, so that was a big, big thing. So it just kind of flowered from there, and I am married to this man. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. The right guy. Oh, okay. yeah. Well, I, so I have to ask what camel's milk tastes like. Well... We all ask what breast milk tastes like. Everybody's tried it, right? We have to ask what camel's milk tastes like. Camel's milk is very interesting because, first of all, you think, ooh, camel, what's that going to be? And everybody's kind of nervous about it. Um, But the first thing they do when they hold it up, they look at it. Sometimes they'll smell it. Then they take a taste, and they get this surprise face. Oh, and they say, it tastes like milk. It just tastes like milk. That's because it is milk. (laughs) Now, I like to liken it to, um, I prefer that raw. I mean, pasteurized has got its uses, too. Very important. Um, but I personally, because we can have raw milk in this country, I prefer it raw. And uh, to me, it's like fine cheeses. Mm. You know, you can taste the grass, the earth, the water, um, the feed, sometimes a stage of lactation. So it's all got a different flavor. Um, but um, it tastes fine, and that's pretty much, I've gotten to the point now, it's the only milk we even drink in our house. So you all drink it? We all drink it. I feel Amazing. much better when I'm on it. Uh, my husband loves it. To me, it's like the healthiest choice that I make. And where do you find it? In this country, the this is the kind of the interesting part. Back in the day when I was like the sole survivor of camel milk information, um, you know, I had to fly it in. So I flew it in a lot in um, suitcases. And I got USDA permission from the headquarters because the uh, love this guy, this veterinarian at LAX was helping us get it in because he knew it was beneficial. But he's like, I think you should get permission from headquarters. So we did that. Um, but that time I was flying it in, so I did that for years. Then when I found out, oh my gosh, Amish people in the United States are milking camels. 
So I thought, oh, okay, now scientifically thinking, we have to find out, is that going to have the same effect as milk from the other countries? Because um, nobody knew. Because some people were like, oh, is it the magical feed that they eat? Do these facial herbs? Turns out I got the milk here, and it did the same thing. Amazing. So it's actually the milk. It's not what they eat, even though that's probably a factor. It's the camel and their milk. The camel is a magical animal. It really is astounding. So It's um, not their access to television. It's not or their technology. <laughs> you know what? No, it's not. Those kids, those guys are very adaptable, but they are not known for that for old for new modern living. So um, the Amish started has been have been milking it. So in 2012, I decided to go public, and so I wrote an article called "Got Camel Milk" for the Autism File magazine, and that was like one of the biggest articles they've ever had. People really liked it, so um, that really helped you know push forward that the movement. So I've been lucky to have great friends uh, among Amish people and Amish turned Mennonite people and all those in this country. And they are very, very diligent. They, they live a healthy lifestyle themselves. They live close to the land. And they put a lot of thought and a lot of effort into the camels. And they keep the milk as clean and pure as they can. And they really um, raise them according to the wholesome standards that people with diseases and health-impaired children want. So how do, do you buy it through the Internet? You can order it through the internet. I like to order mine straight from the farmers. There also are a couple of brands you can buy in the stores. It's really starting to penetrate um, in the stores at just at a you know a spot level here and there. Um, so to me, either you find it in a very upscale market area or you find it in an ethnic area. Okay. Um, but you know it's going to be growing, I'm sure. But I do like to order from the farmers uh, because you know they do direct to farm and. It's just nice. You, you get to support them. And these these are people that are living on the land. My own term is, I call them the American pastoralists. Mm, I love that. Mm -hmm. So how does it compare price-wise to, I mean, all of the crazes of people not wanting to drink dairy anymore, I would think that this would absolutely take off. Because what do we pay for almond milk and cashew milk and all of the other? Correct. And it is uh, more expensive than those because camels don't give that much milk. And there are not that many of them and it's not easy to milk them. Now you can get them to the point where they can be milked without their calves to stimulate the uh, lactation, but that takes a lot of effort. It's more, more of industry that's able to do that. These guys that are milking in America, you know, a lot of them still use the calves. Not all, but most of them seem to use the calves. Um, so it's, it's labor intensive. So you can get it anywhere from nine to $12 a bottle if you buy it from the farmers. Okay. And if you buy it in the store, you can see it anywhere from 15 or 16 to 28 dollars a bottle okay beverly hills 28 bucks a bottle last time i checked but of course mm -hmm. right <laughs> but uh yeah so and then i just because it's the holiday season i yeah. got a little surprise oh this is a package of Look at powdered camel milk from oh abu dhabi God. that is really cool so you can buy it in a powder form. Is this as effective uh, health-wise? Um, first of all, you can't buy that. No, I can't buy it. Unless you go to right. Abu Dhabi. <laughs> and then I'll set you up with nope, buy it. it. Yeah. But um, no one knows that yet. There needs to be studies done. Um, you know, and it's different methods of pasteurization. There's, a, there's the, um, the intensive method where they cook it for 30 minutes, and most people don't care for that. Um, there's the quick flash method where it only takes like 20 seconds, um, but we don't really have that in this country yet. So, um, and the studies are kind of still out on pasteurized versus raw, but most people do prefer raw when you're dealing with the states of disease that most people will have to drive them to using camel milk. Um, you prefer it raw. I personally prefer it raw as far as my drinking it. But I mean, I think there's a room for pasteurized raw everything. So yeah. that, the package I just gave you, I shared one with some of my Somali friends and they showed me how to use it in tea and make it very thick, they call milk tea. Oh, that sounds great. So there's for you. I'm going to try this. Mm -hmm. That is fantastic. So in terms of um, other health benefits, uh, you said that you feel better. What what sort of have you specifically observed in yourself that makes you feel better on it? Well, I'm lucky that I don't have any serious health problems, but um, I just feel like less hunger. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that from other people, too, like Dr. Gonen as well and Israeli people. They're, it's like a hunger quencher. It... Um, it really is very good at that. And I feel like when I use camel milk, my skin looks better. I feel like a little peppier and lighter. And I also don't feel as hungry. So, you know, our girls want to keep our slim figure. Right. To me, that's useful. And there actually is like a, an old uh, song where in one of the camel cultures, like the, the description is, well, she's as beautiful and slim as a girl that has drunk camel milk all her life. Oh, I love that. Wow. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. All these things that you learn that you've, like I said at the beginning of the show, there are so many things that I've heard about that I would have no idea that. <laughs> no, you really would not. Mm-hmm. I love it. So I also wanted to talk a little bit about big misconceptions of autism. I mean, I, I feel like there are so many, I don't know, misunderstandings about autism that we all walk around with. And I want to dispel any of those that you can tell. I mean, now you're going to ask me for an example, but... <laughs> But I want to dispel any misconceptions that our listeners have about autism and sort of, you know, make sure that the record is set straight on what it is and what it isn't. Okay. I guess it changes over time. When I started out doing this a few years ago, 15 years ago, it was, oh, they're all what they called at the time mentally retarded. Now, of course, we we don't, people don't like the word retarded for good reason. So, you know, intellectually retarded. you know, impaired or not even impaired, intellectually different, whatever, challenge, whatever you want to say. But actually now we know with autism that's not true. If you test them using nonverbal testing methods, they come out as more intelligent than your average American. So there. Right. Um, and oftentimes they have very many uh, skills in certain areas. But that leads us to another myth, that they're all math geniuses or they're all, you know, brilliant savants or something. No, actually they're not. There are some kids that have those skills and adults that do, but most of them don't really have special skills. They're just regular people, just like anybody else, and they want the same things. They might get hung up on, you know, certain things that they get obsessed with or or certain things or temper issues that if if they're being overwhelmed, they might have a struggle moving from one activity to the other or get angry and upset, but that's just part of their neurobiology. And then another myth that leads us to another one, and uh, that's that um, they all, uh, you know, if they can't talk, then that means they are not smart. That's also a misconception, too. Um, I was lucky enough to visit, um, you know, a person that is uh, very, very low verbal recently. And this person was just astounding when he was able to communicate his his skill, his wit, his insightfulness, just it's like so moving because you know that that's sort of it's almost like being deaf without a hearing aid or hard, you know hearing impaired without a hearing aid this person is communication impaired so they get left out of so much but they are listening they are there they have opinions and they should go to college they should be joining in doing what people want to want other people want to do yeah right and the other i don't know if it's a misconception but i maybe a confusion is the difference between asperger we hear a lot about asperger's as a specific type of autism i assume there are other specific types of autism that i just don't hear as much but asperger seems like such a popular one particularly in my family i hear my sister-in-law throwing around asperger's quite a bit in relation to my family members is that a di- are, are the specific types of autism diagnosable where you can say definitively, yeah, he has Asperger's or, or? Well, diagnosis right now is only an observational thing. Like you can do tests and insight on social tests and things like that, but mainly it's just somebody's opinion. Um, so there's no blood test yet. There's no medical testing. So it's somebody's opinion. However, there are certain hallmarks, um, unusual use of language, unusual use of eye contact, um, motor skills. We're more and more recognizing that there is a motor skill difference. Sometimes a person with Asperger's might walk a little stiffly. Um, they might, you know, be a little uncomfortable um, and hesitant before they commit to a conversation. Uh, they might do things like that. On the other hand, some of them talk way too much and, um, you know, can't put the brakes in. Um, it's really hard to say, but there's usually just differences. And also, as far as the, the, the diagnostic criteria, uh, the DSM changed recently where uh, Asperger's was done away with. So now it's all just considered autism spectrum disorder. Um, However, what that has done, unfortunately, is going to make it more difficult to give the diagnosis. And people that do have Asperger's syndrome, unfortunately, it's going to be harder to diagnose them because nobody wants to label them as autism. But they're not that. They are different. They are different in some ways, but in other ways, they're just an expression of the same thing. So once we get science advanced enough to know that there are subclasses of people who have this range that we call autism spectrum disorder, we will come up with different names and different disease disease areas and different abilities for them. But right now we're still evolving that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now the book has been out for a decade. You believe it's been out a decade? No. 
I was here a decade <laughs> ago, right in this radio station, doing Writers on Writing, and now here I am. So Ten I'm, years later, right? I never would have known that. Right. Mm-hmm. Have you thought of doing any... Well, you said it's still... All the information is still very accurate, and it's still up to date. I don't know if you've thought of re-releasing it with a sort of update with the camel's milk. You know, angle? I I would like... What I'd like to do is get m- a bigger um, book out there that's going to touch on uh, the milk, how to use it, and the demand is just crazy. I mean, I have people contacting me from all over the world. I've worked with people from every religion, culture, almost every country, not quite, but almost. And everybody wants to know how to help their sick kid or how to help their own juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease. There's a lot of things. Diabetes now. There are studies that are emerging now for all of the uses of camel's milk in most of these disease areas. Not all, but some. They're really starting to come out. So I hope to get this in a publishable format. I have a lot of information, so I'm working on that. We're going to see the hills of uh, San Joaquin Road <laughs> lined with camels pretty soon. <laughs> that would be a beautiful sight. Wouldn't let's that go, be awesome? Let's go meet with the Irvine Company right now. Right, yeah, the Irvine Company will have camel farms all over the place when they hear that they can get $28 a bottle. For I'm, I'm here for you, Irvine Company. <laughs> so if we don't want to drive to Beverly Hills, is there a place people can go in and around Orange County where they can find it? Orange County, I believe there are some stores, um, but I haven't checked lately. Um, Oh, that's right. You get it it direct from the source. I do. Um, So there are a couple of farms out there. Um, There are some great ones. Um, What I like to do is ask people to look at my author page, which is on Facebook, um, and uh, I can post on there or answer the questions, or if people write me, my email is cadams at xiqllc.com. Or follow me on Twitter at Camel Milk Info, and I will direct you based on where you live, the best place for you to find the milk that you need. Perfect. You're on Facebook. You're on LinkedIn. There's no reason not to find you. No, there's <laughs> not. And if you Google my name and Camel Milk or Autism, you will get some of my articles come up. And the medical journal article, you can show that to the skeptics among you because it is peer-reviewed. I love it. And now I have my own very package of Camel's Milk. You do. Now, just for fun, I'm wearing a ring from the um, Tuareg people of wonderful camel culture. And a little, it's a dancer's ring. That's beautiful. So it's a little Christmas Christmas jingle for our our listeners. I love it. I'm going to post a picture of that on Facebook after this. Wonderful. Along with my camel's milk package. This is really great. Christina Adams, this was a huge pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed it so much. Thanks so much. That's all the time we have for today. Stay tuned for Counterspin coming up next, and Real People of Orange County will be right back here with you next week. I'll be with you yet again next week. So if you're if you're not tired of listening to my voice, tune in next Thursday, 4 o'clock. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great day.